Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As a an athlete who who looks up to, you know, Muhammad Ali, I feel like it is my responsibility to use my voice and to use my platform for change and for good. I, I don't think I would be able to sleep at night if I constantly, you know, like closed my mouth on social issues and said, you know, I'm not going to speak about it because it doesn't affect me. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have an amazing, remarkable, historic, trailblazing guest. We have the only U.S. Muslim woman to ever medal in Olympic history and the only one to ever compete while wearing a hijab, Ibtahaj Muhammad. So thrilled and honored to have her on the show. Also, we've got some choice words about the layoffs at ESPN, some Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down awards, Colin Kaepernick watch with an extra special surprise at the end. But first, Ibtahaj Muhammad. Like, first question is, you know, I imagine that few people in Maplewood, New Jersey, find fencing as an athletic outlet. How did you find this as your sport? And when did you know that you loved it? So, um, interesting story about Maplewood, New Jersey. Uh, fencing, I would say, is probably our number one sport. It is um, the most decorated of the high school teams at our, our, our high school between Maplewood and South Orange. We share um, a local high school, one school district. But, um, yeah, we have the most decorated team of all the teams at our school. And we have some pretty strong um, sports teams like our track and field team is pretty good. The soccer team's good. Um, but we're always like number one contenders for state championship in fencing. Defensers, defensers like have status like football players at other schools? Uh, no, I don't think fencers have status anywhere in life <laughs> <laughs> at any point. But um, no, so I played a lot of sports growing up and my. I grew up in Maplewood my whole life. My mom and I just kind of stumbled upon fencing. My parents were looking for a sport for me to play where I could be covered as a Muslim youth. And we happened to find fencing. We were like at a stoplight and we saw it through the high school windows. We saw the fencers at the time they practiced in the school cafeteria. And that's how we discovered fencing. We didn't know what it was when we saw it when I was 12, but my mom was like, well, you know, they have on long sleeves, they have on long pants, and, I, I, you know, they were, we thought were helmets, um, which we later found out were masks, but that's literally how I got started. We were just looking for a sport where I could, you know, uh, essentially be in uniform with my teammates and not have to adjust what I was wearing um, as a, a Muslim girl. And when did you know, though, that you loved it, that it wasn't just a sport that fit the, the clothing that you were wearing, but something that you were like, wow, this is a real passion? You know, I can't say that I have this uh, love for fencing. I have a passion for competing. I'm 
a very competitive person. I've been like this my whole life. And I've always enjoyed kind of this thrill that came with competing. I like to challenge myself. And throughout my, my athletic journey, I guess, I had these different goals that I would set for myself, whether that would be doing well at a local competition when I first started or going to a good university. Um, I think I just kind of continued to, to like reset the bar. And I guess a few years later, I found myself on an Olympic team. Like, oh, hey, look, like you looked up and said, I'm on the Olympic team. Oh, no. I, 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 I remember in 2012, um, it was after the Olympic team had been named for the 2012 Games. I wasn't on the team. I'd been on the world team at that point for two years. So I feel like I was kind of getting my feet wet in the sport still, um, like establish, establishing a strong world ranking. Uh, the team was named. I wasn't on it. And I, I saw how that affected the people around me that I didn't qualify for the Olympic team. Um, I think my family kind of seemed kind of sad. My friends, you know, wanted to see me in the Olympic Games. Um, but for me, it just didn't feel like a part of my journey. It wasn't something that I planned for to qualify for the Olympics because mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know what the Olympic qualifying process entailed. I was just going to World Cups and trying to do well. I didn't know I needed this many results and I needed to be ahead of this person by this much. I didn't know any of those things. I was just going out there competing. So when I didn't make the team, um, it was funny because in the Muslim community as a, again, I was on the national team for two years at that point, as one of the only, I would say probably the only professional athlete um, amongst Muslim Americans at the time, uh, and as a Muslim woman, um, I was in the Muslim community, they've been calling me Olympian for forever, because people don't know the difference between, you know, being a, a youth athlete and being like, uh, on a national team for them. Like, if you're, if you're doing it full time, you're an Olympian. So um, it wasn't until after I failed to qualify that those words kind of like uh, stung a little bit. And I found myself telling people I'm not an Olympian, but, you know, and um, I remember I was talking to this young girl uh, and she asked me, she came to me and she asked me for an autograph Mm -hmm. Um, and she referred to me as an Olympian and the girl I was standing with, uh, a friend at the time, she's like, oh, she's not an Olympian. Right. And it was kind of in this moment in 2012, like, having this little girl ask me for an autograph and having someone else say I was an Olympian, it was literally in this moment, I kind of made this conscious decision to go out for the next Olympic team. And it wasn't necessarily about um, me in that moment or about this little girl. It was like um, my younger self for all those times I've been told no as a kid, um, whether that be because I was black and in fencing or because I was a Muslim girl involved in sport. Um, I've always liked, to push the envelope and kind of challenge uh, people's notions of what's what's normal and what's acceptable. That's always been a part of my journey and who I am. So um, I, I, I kind of made this decision in 2012, you know, I'm going to go out for the Olympic team. I'm going to give everything that I have um, to go out for the team. I didn't have a high world ranking at the time. Um, I don't, I don't think anyone thought it was possible for me to qualify for the team, especially people within the fencing community. Um, but it was something that I, I kind of had my eyes set on for four years. Now, at what point were you self-aware that if you did make the team, you would be a trailblazer, that you would have the chance to become the first Muslim-American woman to medal, and that you would be the first Muslim-American to ever compete while wearing hijab? At what point were you aware that you would be 
blazing that trail? Well, I knew when, I think back in 2011, um, someone wrote an article, uh, a journalist wrote an article about, a, I don't know, me being on the national team or something. And she mentioned I was the first Muslim woman to represent Team USA in international competition. So I figured, you know, if to me, logically, it made sense that if I were to qualify for an Olympic team, I would be the first Muslim woman to do so. Um, it didn't really, it, I mean, it wasn't something that I, th- I consciously thought about, I would say, until after I qualified for the team in February of, of 2016, because then it just kind of became like a media storm around my name and me qualifying um, as the first Muslim woman to do so. I know that I've always been aware of being different and um, kind of breaking into spaces where I've felt underrepresented, whether that be as a person of color or as a religious minority, um, especially in the sport of fencing. So um, to be able to, you know, kind of break through what literally, it it almost feels like a glass ceiling, right? That, um, I feel like people from particular communities, from underserved communities, minority communities, aren't given access to the sport of fencing. So to be able to kind of overcome these different obstacles, not just in sport, but outside of sport, to become the first Muslim woman on on Team USA, and then to come home with a medal, it was just like a phenomenal experience. And I, I, for me, it just, my journey has felt so much bigger than me, because I see that, um, it can affect more so the people who come after me, you know, the kids who, who may not have seen themselves even on team USA because there isn't anyone who looks like them on the team. Right. So not just the Muslim kids, but also um, kids who, I don't know, who may not have access to say like ice hockey or fencing or gymnastics and think, well, you know, I don't see people out there who look like me. Um, And I think that that's what was so groundbreaking about this Olympics, specifically for Team USA, specifically for women and minority women, um, because we had so many firsts, you know, to have Simone Manuel do something, you know, this like unachievable, I mean, this like amazing feat in the pool, to have Simone Biles do something amazing on the gymnastics floor, and to have, you know, a Muslim woman compete in the sport of fencing. I think that it's, um, I don't know, to me, it was just a, it felt very moving at the Olympics and not just for me and fencing, but to see uh, people kind of break and shatter those ceilings uh, all around me. Yeah. I've interviewed uh, trailblazers in the past and people who have had to have uh, you could call it the burden of representation and not just the privilege, if you will, of just being themselves and competing. And what I'm always curious about is how much in your mind is this blessing and how much is it burden? It's never felt like a burden, and I'll, I'll tell you why. As someone who's struggled with being different for my entire life, right? And, and really, I don't necessarily think it's something that um, – it's not something that I feel like is my issue, right? It, al- it almost feels like it's projected onto you by other people's insecurities, right? Because I'm comfortable with – my skin color, I'm comfortable with my religious beliefs, I'm comfortable with my gender, I'm very comfortable being if you had, you know, and I've always been like that. Um, but I, I've seen how, you know, being different um, can, I've seen how being different can um, affect how 
other people treat you how they view you. And I feel like that's um, a projection of their own insecurities. Mm -hmm. You know, we met on Copacabana Beach during the Olympics. Um, I highly doubt you remember. And it was uh, <laughs> and it was after the competition and you, you were so kind. I was with a friend and their young child and uh, you were just so nice to us and you looked so relaxed and so just generally calm and happy. And you were also kind of just anonymous. You were there, you were with a friend, you know, thousands of people walking by. And I guess I wanted to ask you about the, the Rio experience for you. How anonymous were you in Rio among the Olympians? Did you feel like you were part of a community? Did you feel apart from that community? What was that like? Well, I would say that, you know, Rio was this, blessing and felt so unreal almost from start to finish because it's something that you work so long and so hard for and it's almost you know inexplainable the the amount of time and energy you put into something to to achieve you know even qualifying for a U.S. Olympic team um, but to be able to walk you know next to some of the most prolific athletes of our time um, was, I mean, such an honor for me. And you, I mean, you feel like a unit, um, being part of team USA, you feel like almost, you know, inhuman, you can do anything at the games. And I think that's why you have these remarkable performances from athletes, because whatever it is about being at the Olympic games, that kind of, you know, you're able to channel, all those long hours of hard work and dedication and energy and like that it triggers this kind of response in your body where you're able to do, you know, the unthinkable and really the impossible. You're able to make it happen. And um, I, I, I believe that being around, you know, people that I, I've watched on television that I've, you know, looked up to for, for a long time and seen, had the ability to see them perform at their best. And now to, you have the opportunity to win something, you know, just like them. Everybody's on an even playing field at the Olympic Games. You know, it's not about what you've done in the past. It's really about what you can do in that moment. And I think that that really gives you kind of this courage to to put forth your best effort. Um, and being from the United States, for whatever reason, I feel like that literally helped. You just feel like, I don't know, I just feel like I could do anything at the Games. I, I felt like this is my moment. I've worked so hard for this. And um, I don't know. I just, I just really felt like I had this kind of momentum in my head to, to be great at the Olympic Games. Well, well, not anything as Ryan Lochte learned, but almost anything. Right. <laughs> <laughs> now, I'm always curious as well when I talk to athletes about communities of support, um, and particularly with you, I was thinking about this. So, just going to check these three things off real quick. Um, did you feel like you had a community of support, a home team, people cheering you uh, in the state of New Jersey? Oh, definitely. I mean, Mayboard has always been supportive. You felt the Jersey love. Oh, I did. I still do. Um, I, I've always felt supported by, by my town, and I think that there's a sense of hometown pride because I started at the local high school, um, and I've coached at the local high school. My family still is in Mayboard, so – there is, I think, a genuine sense of pride for, um, you know, not just for my family, but also the people that live there. And I, I yeah. And, and I'm also curious about uh, the, 
the Muslim community because, you know, people talk about a Muslim community. But, of course, as you well know, it's very heterogeneous. It differs by by country. It differs by uh, kind of religious beliefs. But there's also a generalized unity that can exist. What, what kind of support did you receive from the Muslim community? Was it more or less intense from different areas or different countries? What, what was that like? Well, I mean, I, I think that the support that I felt before and after the Olympic Games, I think throughout my career from the Muslim community has just been so strong. Um, and like you said, there's this almost like um, a general sense of support that, and love that you have for um, – that you, that you can have for someone simply based on faith, right? So every single Muslim, and there's like, you know, millions around the world, every single one of them I consider a brother and a sister, right? And that sense of support and community, um, I can feel, you know, just like with the swipe of a finger, a click of a button. I think that's what's so amazing. Um, particularly for me as an athlete uh, on social media, I mean, I get messages from, all different corners of the world from Muslims and non-Muslims, but um, just to have someone say like, you know, I prayed for you this morning, right? Um, right before I'm, I'm going to go out for, you know, um, my first Olympic games, right before, you know, I step on the strip in Rio, that I think even subconsciously helps me on the strip. And I, I like, as a spiritual person, I believe in the power of prayer and I believe in, um, you know, I believe in using prayer, not just um, to, to help you physically, but also to help you mentally. You know, if I believe that everything that happens to me is meant to happen the way that it does, I'm never going to get caught up in a loss. Like, I remember after I lost, you know, um, in the second round at the Olympic Games, I mean, people were relentless on social media. Like, my trolls were out, like, so strong. They were so mean. But, um, you know, they're words. And for me, it, it just felt like that's the way that it was meant to happen. Little did I know that four days later I would, you know, win a medal with my team. But that's the, the crazy part about, or to me, that's, what, that's the amazing part about believing in, you know, your destiny and believing in what God has written for you. You know, I don't hold on too much to the bad things in life. And then you also, you know, don't hold on to to the things that are material and may feel like very good because they could be fleeting and they could leave you in like a split second so um my sense of i think my faith and uh, my spiritual connection has helped me so much along this journey and has also helped me just to remain positive and being positive in sport i mean i can't even tell you how much that helps you as an athlete to have a positive outlook, to believe in yourself, to be consciously happy, um, and to make a conscious decision to be happy is so helpful as an athlete. We'll be back in just a second with more from Ibtahaj Muhammad. But first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Look, we need to support independent media to survive, and there is no media more independent, more unembedded than The Nation. Check us out. Subscribe at thenation.com 
slash subscribe. The latest issue of the magazine this week, it's a special issue called Out from Under Capitalism. Absolutely amazing. There's a forum on jobs. There's articles by Jesse Meyerson, one of my favorite writers on identity politics and class. I mean, it really does look good. So please check it out this week. The Nation magazine, nation.com slash subscribe. And now back to Ibtahaj Muhammad. You're no doubt aware that there have been a lot of discussions on social media about Muslims of African descent sometimes feeling invisible in the Muslim community. Do you feel like you've been able to play a role either from a representative or explicit perspective in, in chipping away at that? And have Muslims of African descent reached out to you to speak to you about this? And when you say African descent, you mean like African-American Muslim community? Yeah, yes, yeah, exactly, yes. So my, par- my parents are African-American. Um, they converted to Islam uh, in the 70s, I guess, 60s, 70s. And um, when people think of Muslim community, right, for whatever reason, specifically here in the United States, there's like an othering that happens. We think of Muslims as being Arab. We think of them as being foreign and not American. Um, And what people don't know about the Muslim community is that the African-American community is the largest population of Muslims here in the United States. We make up over a third of the Muslims here. So, um, you know, it's interesting when you're black and Muslim, there is. It's this weird kind of dynamic that happens because you're almost not black enough for the black community and you're not Muslim enough for the Muslim community. So there's this this tug and pull that happens on a day-to-day basis where you almost feel like you don't belong. You mentioned your father a moment ago, a retired Newark police officer. You've been outspoken on the question of police violence and Black Lives Matter. What pushed you in that direction to say, this is something I need to talk about? Well, I mean, like you said, my dad um, is a retired uh, police officer. He's a drug detective for a long time in New Jersey. And my, I have uncles who also uh, served in the police department in New Jersey, and um, I know that uh, when I think of my dad and the role he played in protecting and serving, and my uncles and the roles that they played, and I also think of my brother, who is African-American male, um, and how African-American men are disproportionately targeted and killed by police officers in this country, I feel a responsibility to, to speak out against you know, uh, police brutality and police violence. Um, As I know that a lot of athletes shy away from uh, social issues. And um, as, as a, an athlete who, who looks up to, you know, Muhammad Ali, I feel like it is my responsibility to use my voice and to use my platform for change and for good. I, I don't think I would be able to sleep at night if I constantly, you know, like, closed my mouth on social issues and said, you know, I'm not going to speak about it because it doesn't affect me. The reality is if if something affects, you know, a neighbor, if something affects, you know, um, someone that even I don't know, I I think that it's my responsibility as a global citizen to speak out on those issues. Now, I I also read that you were detained by by customs at an airport. Can can you talk about what happened there? Um, Well, I mean, Without going into too much detail, uh, my sister and I were on a flight. We were not flying to our home airport uh, where we normally fly to Newark, where I feel like I kind of, because I do fly all the time, I feel like I know the TSA agents really well, oddly, um, because I'm always at the airport. But 
we were we did an emergency landing um, in Charlotte, North Carolina, and um, a TSA agent, you know, flagged us for whatever reason. He didn't say anything to us. He, um, you know, flagged our, our customs form, and without any explanation, we were pulled into secondary screening, and we sat. In secondary screening for hours, we weren't given any explanation, and we missed our we missed our connection. We missed our our flight, and it it stinks for a multitude of reasons. You know, I I, I don't know if you've ever felt this, but um, to feel as though you're being targeted for your religion or for your skin color, it it is even though like you know what it feels like. Um, every single time every time and for me to be in that room um, with people who were having you know visa issues and uh, may not have had the proper documentation to visit the United States there were people uh, who were being told to contact their attorneys Um, I'm pretty sure we're the only Americans in the room it just felt like I, I was being singled out and I didn't belong and my response in that moment was to cry, right? And uh, I'm like, okay, that's not helping anything. But it, it was just a very, like, hurtful moment. It was a very real moment. I've never had that happen to me. And, again, I travel for a living. I travel to, you know, 12 to 15 country, different countries a year, and that's just for sport. You know what I mean? So to have this happen to me and not just, you know, as an American citizen, but also as an Olympic athlete who represented our country at the Games just a few months prior, it just felt very real and very hurtful for me and my sister. Now, the head of Homeland Security, John Kelly, he recently gave a speech where he said, and I'm practically quoting verbatim, that no one has ever stopped at an airport due to their appearance or religion, but always because they said or did something. I mean, what what message do you have for him? I mean, I'm pretty sure that he knows that those are alternative facts. He knows that. That's obviously not true. <laughs> I can't I can't even take that comment seriously. <laughs> As someone who is profiled at the airport every single day I go to the airport, I am pulled over and at, like, you know, uh, patted down because I, I wear I wear headscarves every single time I go to the airport. That alone is profiling. So to say that I would have to say something in order to be targeted, that's not true. Now, speaking of this Department of Homeland Security and this administration, you wrote this really incredible letter, open letter to Donald Trump a couple of months back where you talked about this administration whipping up a climate of fear and hatred. I believe that's an exact quote. And I wanted to ask, what are your thoughts right now about this administration? So many people are throwing out grades about how they think it's going after 100 days. And I would love to hear your perspective on that. I don't know if I feel much differently now than I did 100 days ago. Um, I think that, you know, you're, you're hoping for the best, but you're prepared for the worst. And there hasn't been, you know, a lot of change in the last or change for the better that I've been able to see. Um, So until things improve for uh, refugees, for immigrants, for 
women for the transgendered community, then I don't know if we're moving in the right direction. And, and I got to ask you on a much happier note, you were named to the Time 100. And you had a write-up of why you were there. 100 Most Influential People, uh, Keith Ellison, uh, I believe the only uh, Muslim serving member of Congress. Um, what was that like? To, and what was it when you found out you made that list? I mean, too, I, I, so this is the second time that I was able to go to the Time 100 Gala being named last year. And, I mean, to be in a room of these really prolific and profound people who are changing the world, some for the better and some, you know, not, not uh, for, you know, the most um, positive things. I, I, it just, it's an honor, you know, to be named to that list. And I, I, for me, it helps me um, kind of, I guess, kind of refocus your goals. Um, and you realize, actually, I'm not doing enough. There's more that I could be doing. I mean, there are people who are, especially like in the in the field of science, who are really just doing these remarkable things for us as, you know, um, as a global community. I'm like, man, I'm literally not doing enough in life. Uh, but, no, it, it was an honor to be named to that list. And, um, yeah, I, I hope to continue uh not just as an athlete, but also as a sports ambassador to change the world for the better and also to help change the narrative and the perception that people have about the, the Muslim community, about the African-American community, um, and change them for the better. I've got a couple of questions for you from listeners, all of whom were so excited when they heard we were going to do this interview. Is it okay if I ask you those? Yeah, sure. All right, so someone who goes by the name of Lauren Corndog, I'm not sure if that's her real name or not, but Lauren Corndog uh, wanted to know if you have felt a difference, a tangible difference in your own life across administrations since Donald Trump was elected. Have I felt a tangible difference? I'm not, um, I don't know how to answer that question. I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question. That's a tough question. I would have to think about it. So that means it's a good question. I think it's a great question. And I think that's a question that we could all ask ourselves, right? Yeah. I could t tell you for me is I feel like my, ha my hair has gotten a little grayer. Right. And mm -hmm. I, I, I feel sometimes like I'm tipping back in a chair and catching myself at the last second whenever I look at like a scroll of what the news is from that day. But don't, I mean, for me, I feel like it's helped me as a person find my voice and be willing to use it, even mm. though it may not directly serve, serve me and serve myself. It's, it's really so that um, hopefully you can provide, you know, change for the greater good. I think that, and I don't think that's just for me. I think it's done this for a lot of people. I think it's kind of forced a lot of us into seats of like activism. And it's kind of awoken this inner activist um, and helped people realize the things that they can do, you know, even just as like, um, you know, people who are not in like direct positions of power, who aren't in government, who are just, you know, citizens. It helps us, it's helped us like kind of find our space and find our voice and find the things that we can do to, to provide tangible change. My God, you, you are so positive. It's it's amazing. Like, 
I'm I'm in sunny I'm in sunny Los Angeles right now, so I'm excited. That's helping me. So that's helping. <laughs> uh, Scott Lamort wants to know if you're familiar of Ms. Marvel, aka Kamala Khan, the other Muslim superhero from New Jersey. No, I don't know who that is. That's a new Marvel comic character. He just wanted to know because it's a it is a Muslim female superhero from New Jersey, and he sees similarities between you and Kamala Khan. Just so you know. Oh, how cool is that? Oh no, I've I've seen. I didn't know. I didn't know her last name. I know there's a few Kamalas floating out there, but I didn't know her name was Kamala Khan. But I have seen a superhero. That's that's cool. But tell him I said thank you. No problem. And and Fouad Pervez. And I think he's also, I know Fouad, and he's also, I think, talking about his own uh, partner. But he wants to know, quote, why are Muslim women from New Jersey the jam? <laughs> it must be something in the water. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we'll, we'll definitely leave it at that. Uh, Ibtaj Muhammad, thank you. So, oh, I, I ask this of everybody. I got to ask you, music when you train, what do you listen to? What gets you going? What gets your blood pumping? What gets me going? I've been listening to Kendrick Lamar's new album. I got, I got, I got loyalty, got royalty inside my DNA. Cocaine quarter piece, got war and peace inside my DNA. I got power, poison, pain, and joy inside my DNA. I got hustle, though, ambition, flow inside my DNA. Damn. I mean, damn. Exactly. Like, <laughs> 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 Great choice. Ibtahaj Muhammad, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Dave. It's great talking to you. You as well. All right, take care. Bye. Thank you so much to our guest this week, Ibtahaj Muhammad. If people want more information, want to know more about Ibtahaj, follow her on Twitter at Ibtahaj Muhammad. I-B-T-I-H-A-J-M-U-H-A-M-M-A-D. Now I've got some choice words for you about the recent round of layoffs at ESPN. Look, the layoffs of over 100 people at ESPN, including some of their most recognizable and accomplished journalists, has shaken the sports world and created what for non-sports fans must be a puzzling level of grief across social media. It is worth explaining what we are losing and what it says about my profession, as well as the ruptured wall between journalism and entertainment. On the most basic level, it's demoralizing that a journalist like Jeanette Howard, who was a guest on this podcast just a few weeks ago and who owned the story about the threatened strike of the U.S. women's hockey national team in the lead-up to last month's world championships, is now unemployed. In addition, not having Jason Stark, who performed the impossible task of making baseball analytics fun, or Tom Farry, who has done more than any reporter in the country to educate all of us about the professionalization of youth sports, weakens journalism. It also looks like some of the best shoe leather reporters at the network, Ethan Strauss, Jean-Jacques Taylor, Steve Delsone, Ed Werder, were seen as expendable, while the professional pundits in general paid far more than the journalists are staying. The line between entertainment and journalism at ESPN has never been fuzzier. This hurts because for all ESPN's faults, 
Its journalism has been critical to expanding the conversation on issues ranging from domestic violence in sports to concussions in the NFL. When ESPN covers these topics, they are far more likely to become part of a national conversation. To add insult to injury, the firings are hardly going to save money. As Tom Lay and Deadspin writes, add up all the salaries of the people who lost their jobs today and how much of a single Monday night football broadcast does it buy? 10 minutes? 15? As Lay and others have explained, these layoffs are about the staggering multi-billion dollar price tags that sports networks are paying for the rights fees to broadcast games because live sports are the last shows that people are willing to sit through commercials to watch. They are also related to changing viewing habits that as more people cutting the cord of cable and the high costs of having ESPN as part of our cable packages. But these layoffs are not even a band-aid on the money being hemorrhaged by the network. They are more about assuring Disney stakeholders that ESPN is taking things very seriously and is prepared to keep itself lean and competitive. And that's another quote from Tom Lay. Look, a little side note as well. If you see any article that tries to blame ESPN's economic struggles on the quote-unquote liberal tilt of the network, use those to line your birdcage. First, it's not true. Second, it seems to be a reaction to the fact that ESPN actually has a laudable commitment to diversity and putting women, black people, and people of color in a position to actually talk about sports. This sends the alt-right sewers of the internet and their minions at publications like the National Review into fits of hysterics. It's an unserious argument made by unserious people. But there's more to the sadness in people's reactions to this news. As has been widely reported, more retail workers have been laid off than the total number of working coal miners over the last several months. The emerging gig economy leaves working people vulnerable. The layoffs at ESPN trigger our own economic insecurities. People who have been on our televisions, people we perceive of as having made it, aren't even secure. They were dismissed with rote scripted three-minute phone calls. Then there is what ESPN has always represented, even if that representation has always been more Shangri-La than reality. I speak to a good many sports journalism classes, and for these young people, landing a job at ESPN is discussed like the Holy Grail, the Great Brass Ring. That has now been demystified, and I don't think it's ever going to come back, or if it does, it'll be tarnished. I spoke to a very prominent journalist at ESPN, and this is what he said to me. The demystifying isn't the big takeaway, though totally true. The real takeaway is piece by piece, you're witnessing the end of journalism as a career path. Plenty of good work will continue to get done, but journalism, once a field, increasingly is becoming more like writing, an avocation that has never really sustained itself. Tragically, this is spot on correct. The fear is that what we are seeing at ESPN will be a stalking horse to further a process already underway. That gets to the last point. In an era of fake news and yipping heads, it has never been more precarious to be a journalist. You really have to love this work to endure it. Trust me. But that doesn't mean we have to endure its indignities. The people who have been laid off from ESPN have uniformly taken the high road on social media and said incredibly classy things about their former employer. And they should be commended for this. But I think a little anger would not be out of place. It's righteous to be angry about being treated this way, all for the high-minded purpose of placating the stock market. 
To say nothing is to accept it as the way it has to be. It reminds me of the old story of the frog in the pan of cold water who slowly dies as the heat is turned up to a boil and they just quietly die. If journalism is going to die, let's not content to be boiled alive. Let's not content to go quiet into that good night. The stakes are too damn high. And now, hey, look who's here. My co-producer, David Tigabu, has some questions. Our comments or discussion points, I have no idea what's on his mind, but he has something to say about what I was just talking about. David, what's up, man? So I was on social media this week, and all over my timeline, there were people that were speculating on who was going to get let go. Was it Jamel Hill? Was it Bomani Jones? Was it uh, Stephen A. Smith? And it kind of devolved into this partisan back and forth about why ESPN was failing, who was to blame, and people were cheering for certain people to lose their job. And it, to me, felt like sort of the outgrowth of the Trump era where everything has been polarized. Mm -hmm. You saw it with the Super Bowl. You know, if you were a Trump supporter, you were obviously aligned with New England. If you were not a Trump supporter, you did not like New England. So can we expect more of this in this in this era? Well, short answer, yes, because this country is profoundly polarized right now. I mean, a social crisis is ripping across this country. There are... Uh, Nazis and white supremacists who are in the White House, and that will generate polarization. Uh, and we're seeing it reflecting in dramatic fashion in the world of sports. I will say a couple things, though, about what you said explicitly. One of the things we know, though, is that the truth is always fuzzier than these incredibly superficial labels that social media puts on these different questions. You mentioned the Super Bowl. Of course, we know that six members actually more than that, of the New England Patriots. But six members for explicitly political reasons refused to go to the White House, even though the owner of the team, Bob Kraft, is a buddy of Donald Trump. So it shows you that calling the Patriots team Trump, the, the reality is much more complicated than that. Similarly, I also saw on social media the cheerleading for Jamel Hill, Michael Smith, Stephen A. Smith, Bamani Jones to all get fired. Look, what those four people have in common politically is honestly not a lot. They have very different political ideas in their heads. What they do have in common is the color of their skin. And this is the thing I was talking about in the article is that people who say ESPN is quote-unquote liberal, what they're usually decrying is not the politics of the network, but it's the fact that ESPN does have a laudable commitment to diversity. And it's the perception of losing power just because women or uh, people with brown and black faces are the people delivering the news and having commentary. So, yeah, that, that's a very disturbing outgrowth of the times we are in. And I'll just say another thing about that as well. I have long said this, that for people on the left, it's a big mistake to confuse diversity with politics, like not to think just because – um, a person is from a traditionally underrepresented or oppressed group that having them in a position of power somehow will lead to progressive outcomes. I think there's a lot of history that shows us that that is not in and of itself going to put, push progress. But on the flip side of that, it's actually really dangerous when you see people on the right, the alt-right, the white nationalists 2.0, whatever you want to call them, when they start ascribing politics to people just because of the color of their skin or their gender, I mean, then you get into like really dangerous territory. 
where people are targeted, death threats, all the rest of it, off of the crime of doing their jobs. And once again, what this is a reflection of, it's not the reality of the situation, but the fact that there is a crisis ripping out in this country. Given these mass layoffs of on-air personality and technical staff at ESPN, due to these uh, larger shifts taking place in the industry, what does this portend for uh, TV media? And is there an opening here, you think, for um, the emergence of independent progressive media? What it portends is ESPN becoming much more like what a lot of the cable news networks have become, which is places where people talk about the news instead of places where people break the news. And that's very disturbing because the role of the journalist is to hold power uh, to account. It's to afflict the comfortable, if you will. And when you have less people doing that kind of shoe leather journalism, I think there's a we collectively suffer. But shoe leather journalism is not necessarily profitable. And that's fine that it's not profitable. Why does everything have to be profitable to have a social value, for goodness sakes? I, I hate that uh, calculus that's become so pervasive in our society. Uh, so that's what it pretends. And my, my concern is that you know, what ESPN did, it becomes this stalking horse and it normalizes the process that journalists are expendable while personalities are not, even though, as I said, keeping the on-air personalities is not the economic problem at ESPN. Like Stephen A. Smith's salary is not the problem at ESPN. It's the rights fees that they're paying and the fact that people are cutting the cord from their cable packages. Is there space for independent news? Absolutely. But what we haven't quite figured out yet, although I got to tell you, I think we've made amazing progress in the last 10 years, is how to fund it. I mean, there's been developments in how to fund it through online funding, through um, all sorts of other uh, scenarios that people do to self-fund independent media. But I got to tell you, like this is the, the, the Rubik's Cube that has to be solved because otherwise what we're going to get is not dissimilar from what you see with high-end internships, which is the only people who can do it are the people who can be subsidized by their parents or something like that. And when you do that, what you eliminate is our perspectives of people who can't afford to be in those spaces. Thank you so much, David. Always bringing, man, the thoughtful questions, making me think on this stuff. It's, it's tough. It's a tough nut to crack. But you know what? That's why we're doing this podcast and that's why the Nation magazine exists, because we believe in supplying independent, unembedded media. And now, hey, this is a good time as any. A quick word from the other podcast produced by the Nation magazine. It's called Start Making Sense. It's hosted by John Wiener. Uh, they have a brilliant variety of guests on a week-in, week-out basis. It's politics without the boring parts. They debut the show every week at thenation.com on Thursdays. That's an important thing to remember. We always pop off on Tuesdays. They pop off on Thursdays. That's where you get your pod love. Or you can subscribe to Start Making Sense the same way you can subscribe to The Edge of Sports, which is on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. And now it's time for the part of the show where we give out our awards for Just Stand Up and Just Sit Your Ass Down. First and foremost, Just Stand Up goes to a center for the Orlando Magic. And I love it when 
people surprise me when an athlete reveals themselves to have a conscience who I never would have thought otherwise would be that person. And it's Bismack Biombo. People might have heard the story. Bismack Biombo has been named by a terrific organization called Right to Play as a global athlete ambassador. And one of the things he's doing this week while the NBA playoffs are raging is he's visiting Jordan and Palestine. And that trip, what it includes, is a play day at the Baca refugee camp, which was one of the six emergency camps set up in 1968 to accommodate Palestinian refugees and displaced people who left or were thrown out of the West Bank and Gaza Strip after the 1967 Arab-Israeli war. I mean, it's a remarkable thing, first of all, that these camps still exist and that people still live there 50 years after the fact. And the fact that they are not invisible to Bismack Biombo is a beautiful thing. As he said to ESPN, he said, what can I do? How can I help these kids? That's why he's doing it. And so more power to Bismack Biombo. And, you know, I'm really glad that ESPN did an interview with him. Hopefully there'll still be people to do interviews with the Bismack Biombos of the world as they make themselves known. So Just Stand Up Award goes to you, Bismack Biombo. Congratulations. You'll get a T-shirt in the mail if you contact us at Edge of Sports on Twitter. Now, Just Hit Your Ass Down Award. Sit your ass down. How can this go to anyone but Sports Illustrated writer Richard O'Brien, who wrote this What If article about what if Muhammad Ali had never met Malcolm X? And his imagination, this is where it takes us. If Muhammad Ali never meets Malcolm X, he never joins the Nation of Islam, he doesn't oppose the war in Vietnam, he retires before he gets a brain injury that led to Parkinson's, and he lives to be 100 and retires from boxing undefeated, happy, wealthy, the best of all time. This is insulting to the history of Muhammad Ali, and it's also, frankly, cruel. And to me, the better question would be, what would Muhammad Ali's life been like if the FBI hadn't been so racist? That's a question, hadn't harassed him hadn't had his title stripped in 1967, hadn't threatened to throw him behind bars for five years, that would be a much better question. But the whole supposition is very insulting to Muhammad Ali because what it makes it sound like is that Malcolm X is someone who led him by the nose into the Nation of Islam, and that's just ignorant on the history. Muhammad Ali is someone who went to his first Nation of Islam meeting in 1959, three years before he ever met Malcolm X. And when Muhammad Ali announced to the world that he was joining the nation in 1964, Malcolm X was suspended from the Nation of Islam, was on his way out of the Nation of Islam. So this idea that he only joined because of Malcolm X is just historically really specious. And then the idea that he only opposed the war in Vietnam because of the Nation of Islam, I mean, that's also very historically sketchy, and I'll tell you why. It's definitely true that the Nation of Islam had a policy for members that they were not to fight in what they called any white man's war. But at the same time, we now know from declassified, widely circulated FBI documents that there were a lot of people high up in the nation who wanted Muhammad Ali to somehow enter his name in the draft, to box you know, for the troops, USO, all that stuff, because of the heat he was bringing down on the nation uh, because of his public stance as the most famous draft resistor on earth. So that needs to be taken into account. And then the second thing, too, is that it makes it sound like it was some kind of outlier position 
to be against the Vietnam War. When these ideas were all over the country, black, white, draft resistance, burning your draft card, this was a fact of life in the United States. The idea that Muhammad Ali only had access to these ideas because of the nation is also historically absurd. And then just lastly, I got to just come back to this point, this idea that he would not have gotten Parkinson's disease if it wasn't for meeting Malcolm X. I mean, that's just something cruel to even say. And this is the last part of it. I mean, Muhammad Ali was somebody, and please trust me when I tell you this, because I've interviewed so many people who were around Ali in the 1970s. He wasn't dragged back into boxing in the 1970s. Yes, it's definitely true that he was made bankrupt by his three years away from the sport, and it's definitely true that he came back a slower fighter and took all kinds of punishment. But it's also true that, for better or worse, and obviously for worse on some level, he loved the sport. He loved the adulation. He loved the warmth of the crowd. And he loved the fact that he could do this thing better than anybody on earth. He loved that. And you know what? He's hardly the only fighter to hang on too long. Frankly, it would be much more difficult to come up with a list of fighters who did not hang on too long. I mean, as we're doing this show right now, one of the Klitschko brothers is about to fight in this huge heavyweight battle. And, I mean, my goodness, the Klitschkos... I mean, I was thinking, like, how old is this guy? Klitschko's fought Lennox Lewis, for goodness sakes. Lennox Lewis fought Mike Tyson, for goodness sakes. Mike Tyson fought Trevor Burbick. Trevor Burbick fought Muhammad Ali. They hang on too long. It's part of the sport. And the idea that Ali would have been exempt from that is just insulting and absurd and ahistorical. So that's my Just Sit Your Ass Down Award, Sports Illustrated. Don't touch history if you don't know the history. And now it's time for the part of the show that we call Kaepernick Watch. This week, I'm doing a shout-out to a gentleman by the name of Mohsen Mirza, the voting rights program coordinator of the Asian Law Caucus. They gave their 2017 Yuri Kochiyama Impact Award to Colin Kaepernick, and Mohsen wrote a terrific piece uh, justifying why they're giving this award to Colin Kaepernick. And this is what uh, he wrote. He wrote... Some may see the firestorm of controversy as evidence that Kaepernick's stand was misguided. This view is profoundly ahistorical. Being controversial is the essence of protest itself. When we take these actions, we force society to address the problems it has been ignoring. And in doing so, we begin laying the groundwork for change, end quote. And I thought that was beautiful, so I wanted to read it. So congratulations, Colin Kaepernick. And for folks who want to know more about Yuri Kochiyama, the person who it is named for, we've spoken about her previously on this show. We played a clip of Colin Kaepernick paying tribute to Yuri Kochiyama during Women's History Month. People can go back to edgeofsportspodcast.com and listen to that. And also, I got a little news for everybody. A week from this Saturday, that's Saturday, May 6th, some finally going to meet the man himself, Colin Kaepernick. I'll be going out to Chicago for one of the Know Your Rights events that he does. Uh, I don't think there's going to be any kind of interview time for the podcast, but it will be a time to get to talk to him, look at his work, write an article about it, and I will definitely report back to the podcast about the experience. And now it's time for a segment of the show that we want to promote much more seriously, and that's the call-in segment where we really want to hear from you, the Edge of Sports listeners. You just have to call us at 401-426-EDGE. That's 401-426-3343. I'm going to give a question, and I really want you to call 
and tell us what you think. And we'll play some of the responses on the podcast, and I will give my own two cents on what you are saying. So my question this week, it's something I was thinking about while watching the NFL draft, and it's this. How many folks out there have decided to tune out football? I want to hear from folks who have been football fans and either are no longer football fans or are seriously considering dumping the sport. Maybe they're not there yet. Please give me a call, 401-426-3343. That's 401-426-EDGE. I want to hear from you. Wither football. That's the question. I want to hear your answer. So that's all for this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast. Thank you, first and foremost, to my co-producers, Daniel Baker and David Tigabu. Thank you so much to Ibtahaj Muhammad for your candor and for your incredible ability to articulate what needs to be said. Thank you to everybody out there who's been supporting the show. You can always listen to back episodes at edgeofsportspodcast.com. You can also get a t-shirt. Come on now, everybody. Go to edgeofsports.com. Click on the link. we got these amazing Edge of Sports t-shirts. You can follow us on Twitter at Edge of Sports Pod. We have an Instagram account at Edge of Sports Pod if you want to check that out as well. Hit us up. Like us on Facebook. I mean, we're all over the place here, but we need to hear from you and we need your support. And the most important thing is if you're just listening to this podcast randomly, please subscribe to it at iTunes, Stitcher, your podcast app of choice. If you're a fan, please give it a rating. Please write something up about it. It actually makes a huge difference. So thank you, everybody, big time. Please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.